Book Two of Pierre or the Ambiguities by Herman Melville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nadu, Chiang Mai, Thailand. Book Two Love, Delight, and Alarm. Part Two. Chapter Four. But love has more to do with his own possible and probable posterities than with the once living but now impossible ancestries in the past. So Pierre's glow of family pride quickly gave place to a deeper hue when Lucy bade lover's banner blush out from his cheek. That morning was the choicest drop that time had in his vase. Ineffable distillations of a soft delight were wafted from the fields and hills. Fatal morning that to all lovers unbetrothed. Come to your confessional, it cried. Behold our airy loves. The birds chirped from the trees. Far out at sea, no more the sailors tied their bowline knots. Their hands had lost their cunning. Will they, nil they, love tied love knots on every spangled spar? Oh, praised be the beauty of this earth the beauty and the bloom, and the mirthfulness thereof. The first worlds made were winter worlds, the second made were vernal worlds, the third and last and perfectest was the summer world of ours. In the cold and nether spheres, preachers preach of earth, and we of paradise above. Oh, there, my friends, they say, they have a season in their language known as summer. Then their fields spin themselves green carpets. Snow and ice are not in all the land. Then a million strange, bright, fragrant things powder that sward with perfumes. And high, majestic beings, dumb and grand, stand up with outstretched arms and hold these green canopies over merry angels, men and women, who love and wed, and sleep and dream, beneath the approving glances of their visible god and goddess, glad-hearted sun and pensive moon. O oh, praised be the beauty of this earth, the beauty and the bloom and the mirthfulness thereof. We lived before, and shall live again, and as we hope for a fairer world than this to come, so we came from one less fine. From each successive world, the demon principle is more and more dislodged. He is the accursed clog from chaos, and thither, by every new translation, we drive him further and further back again. Hasanas to this world, so beautiful itself, and the vestibule to more. Out of some past Egypt we have come to this new Canaan, and from this new Canaan we press on to some Circassia. Though still the villains, want and woe, followed us out of Egypt, and now beg in Canaan's streets, yet Circassia's gates shall not admit them. They, with their sire, the demon principle, 
must back to chaos whence they came. Love was first begot by mirth and peace in Eden when the world was young. The man oppressed with cares, he cannot love. The man of gloom finds not the god. So as youth, for the most part, has no cares and knows no gloom, therefore, ever since time did begin, youth belongs to love. Love may end in grief and age and pain and need and all other modes of human mournfulness, but love begins in joy. Love's first sigh is never breathed till after love hath laughed. Love laughs first and then sighs after. Love has no hands but symbols. Love's mouth is chambered like a bugle and the instinctive breathings of this life breathe jubilee notes of joy. That morning, two bay horses drew two laughs along the road that led to the hills from Saddle Meadows. Apt time they kept. Pierre Glendening's young, manly tenor to Lucy Tartan's girlish treble. Wondrous fair of face, blue-eyed and golden-haired, the bright blonde Lucy was arrayed in colors harmonious with the heavens. Light blue be thy perpetual color, Lucy. Light blue becomes thee best. Such the repeated azure counsel of Lucy Tartan's mother. On both sides from the hedges came to Pierre the clover bloom of saddle meadows. And from Lucy's mouth and cheek came the fresh fragrance of her violet young being. Smell I the flowers, or thee, cried Pierre. See I lakes, or eyes, cried Lucy, her own gazing down into his soul, as two stars gaze down into a tarn. No Cornwall miner ever sunk so deep a shaft beneath the sea, as love will sink beneath the floating of the eyes. Love sees ten million fathoms down, till dazzled by the floor of pearls. The eye is love's own magic glass, where all things that are not of earth glide in supernatural light. There are not so many fishes in the sea as there are sweet images in lovers' eyes. In those miraculous translucencies swim the strange eye-fish with wings that sometimes leap out instinct with joy. Moist fish wings wet the lover's cheek. Love's eyes are holy things. Therein the mysteries of life are lodged. Looking in each other's eyes, lovers see the ultimate secret of the worlds. And with thrills eternally untranslatable, feel that love is God of all. Man or woman who has never loved, nor once looked deep down into their own lover's eyes, they know not the sweetest and the loftiest religion of this earth. Love is both creator's and savior's gospel to mankind, a volume bound in rose leaves, clasped with violets, and by the beaks of hummingbirds 
printed with peach juice on the leaves of lilies. Endless is the account of love. Time and space cannot contain love's story. All things that are sweet to see or taste or feel or hear, all these things were made by love, and none other things were made by love. Love made not the arctic zones, but love is ever reclaiming them. Say, are not the fierce things of this earth daily, hourly going out? Where now are your wolves of Britain? Where in Virginia now find you the panther and the pard? Oh, love is busy everywhere. Everywhere love hath Moravian missionaries. No propagandist like to love. The south wind woos the barbarous north. On many a distinct shore, the gentler west wind persuades the arid east. All this earth is love's affianced. Vainly the demon principle howls to stay the bands. Why round her middle wears this world so rich a zone of torrid verdure, if she be not dressing for the final rites? And why provides she orange blossoms and lilies of the valley, if she would not that all men and maids should love and marry? For every wedding where true lovers wed helps on the march of the universal love. Who are brides here shall be love's bridesmaids in the marriage world to come. So on all sides love allures, can contain himself. What youth who views the wonders of the beauteous women world? Where a beautiful woman is, there is all Asia and her bazaars. Italy hath not a sight before the beauty of a Yankee girl, nor heaven a blessing beyond her earthly love. Did not the angelical Lotharius come down to earth that they might taste of mortal woman's love and beauty? Even while her own silly brothers were pining after the self-same paradise they left. Yes, those envying angels did come down, did emigrate, and who emigrates except to be better off? Love is this world's great redeemer and reformer. And as all beautiful women are their selectest emissaries, so hath love gifted them with a magnetical persuasiveness that no youth can possibly repel. The own heart's choice of every youth seems ever as an inscrutable witch to him, and by ten thousand concentric spells, encircling incantations, glides round and round him as he turns, murmuring meanings of unearthly import, and summoning up to him all the subterranean sprites and gnomes, and unpeopling all the sea for naiads to swim round him so that mysteries are evoked as in exhalations by this love. What wonder, then, that love was a a mystic? Chapter 5 And this selfsame morning Pierre was very mystical. Not continually, though, but most mystical one moment, and overflowing with mad, unbridled merriment the next. 
he seemed a youthful magian and almost a mountebank together chaldaic improvisations burst from him in quick golden verses on the heel of humorous retort and repartee more especially the bright glance of lucy was transporting to him now reckless of his horses with both arms holding lucy in his embrace like a sicilian diver he dives deep down in the adriatic of her eyes and brings up some king's cup of joy all the waves in lucy's eyes seemed waves of infinite glee to him and as if like veritable seas they did indeed catch the reflected irradiations of the pellucid azure morning in lucy's eyes there seemed to shine all the blue glory of the general day and all the sweet inscrutableness of the sky and certainly the blue eyes of woman like the sea is not uninfluenced by the atmosphere only in the open air of some divinest summer day will you see its ultramarine its fluid lapis lazuli then would pierre burst forth in some screaming shout of joy on the striped tigers of his chestnut eyes leaped in their lashed cages with a fierce delight lucy shrank from him in extreme love for the extremest top of love is fear and wonder soon the swift horses drew this fair god and goddess nigh the wooded hills whose distant blue now changed into a variously shaded green stood before them like old babylonian walls overgrown with verdure while here and there at regular intervals the scattered peaks seemed mural towers and the clumped pines surmounting them as lofty archers and vast outlooking watchers of the glorious babylonian city of the day catching that hilly air the prancing horses neighed laughed on the ground with gleeful feet felt they the gay delightsome spurrings of the day for the day was mad with excessive joy and high in heaven you heard the neighing of the horses of the sun and down dropped their nostrils froth and many a fleecy vapor from the hills from the plains the mists rose slowly reluctant yet to quit so fair a mead at those green slopings pierre reined in his steeds and soon the twain were seated on the bank gazing far and far away over many a grove and lake corn-crested uplands and herds grass lowlands and long stretching swales of vividest green betokening where the greenest bounty of this earth seeks its winding channels as ever the most heavenly bounteousness most seeks the lowly places making green and glad many a humble mortal's breast and leaving to his own lonely aridness many a hilltop prince's state but grief not joy is a moralizer and small moralizing wisdom caught pierre from that scene with lucy's hand in his and feeling softly feeling of its soft tinglingness he seemed as one placed in linked correspondence with the summer lightings and by sweet shock on shock receiving intimating foretastes 
of the ethereal delights of earth. Now, prone on the grass, he falls, with his attentive upward glance fixed on Lucy's eyes. Thou art my heaven, Lucy, and here I lie, thy shepherd king, watching for new eye-stars to rise in thee. Ha! I see Venus transit now. Lo, a new planet there, and behind all, an infinite starry nebulousness, as if thy being were backgrounded by some spangled veil of mystery. Is Lucy deaf to all these ravings of his lyric love? Why looks she down and vibrates so, and why now from her overcharged lids drop such warm drops as these? No joy now in Lucy's eyes, and seeming tremor on her lips. Ah, thou too ardent and impetuous, Pierre! Nay, thou too moist and changeful, April! Knowst thou not that the moist and changeful April is followed by the glad, assured, and showerless joy of June? And this, Lucy, this day should be thy June, even as it is, is the earth's. Ah, Pierre, not June to me! But say, are not the sweets of June made sweet by the April tears? Ay, love, but here fall more drops, more and more. These showers are longer than beseem the April, and pertain not to the June. June, June, thou bride's month of the summer, following the spring sweet courtship of the earth. My June, my June is yet to come. Oh, yet to come, but fixedly decreed good as come and better. Then no flower that, in the bud, the April showers have nurtured, no such flower may untimely perish, ere the June unfolds it. Ye will not swear that, Pierre. The audacious immortalities of divinest love are in me, and I now swear to thee all the immutable eternities of joyfulness that ever woman dreamed of in this dream-house of the earth. A god decrees to thee unchangeable felicity, and to me the unchallenged possession of thee and them, for my inalienable fief. Do I rave? Look on me, Lucy. Think on me, girl. Thou art young and beautiful and strong, and a joyful manliness invests thee, Pierre, and thy intrepid heart never yet felt the touch of fear. But, but what? Ah, my best Pierre, with kisses I will suck my secret from thy cheek, but what? Let us hie homeward, Pierre, some nameless sadness, faintness strangely comes to me, foretaste I feel of endless dreariness. Tell me once more the story of that face, Pierre, that mysterious haunting face, which thou once toldst me, thou didst thrice vainly try to shun. Blue is the sky, O oh, bland the air, Pierre, but tell me the story of the face, the dark-eyed, lustrous, imploring, mournful face, that so mystically paled and shrunk at thine. Ah, Pierre, sometimes I have thought, never will I wed with my best Pierre until the riddle of that face be known. Tell me, tell me, Pierre, as a fixed basilisk with eyes of steady, flaming mournfulness, that face this instant fastens me. 
bewitched, bewitched, cursed be the hour I acted on the thought that love hath no reserves. Never should I have told thee the story of the face. Lucy, I have bared myself too much to thee. Oh, never should love know all. Knows not all, then loves not all, Pierre. Never shalt thou so say again. And Pierre, listen to me. Now, now, in this inexplicable trepidation that I feel, I do conjure thee, that thou wilt ever continue to do as thou hast done, so that I may ever continue to know all that agitates thee, the airiest and most transient thought that ever shall sweep into thee from the wide atmosphere of all things that hem mortality. Did I doubt thee here? Could I ever think that thy heart hath yet one private nook or corner from me? Fatal, disenchanting day for me, my Pierre, would that be? I tell thee, Pierre, and tis love's own self that now speaks through me. Only in unbounded confidence and interchangings of all subtlest secrets can love possibly endure. Love's self is a secret, and so feeds on secrets, Pierre, that I only know of thee, what the whole common world may know. What then were Pierre to me? Thou must be wholly a disclosed secret to me. Love is vain and proud, and when I walk the streets and meet thy friends, I must still be laughing and hugging to myself the thought, they know him not. I only know my Pierre none else beneath the circuit of yon sun. Then swear to me, dear Pierre, that thou wilt never keep a secret from me. No, never, never swear. Something seizes me, thy inexplicable tears, falling, falling on my heart, have now turned it to a stone. I feel icy cold and hard. I will not swear. Pierre, Pierre, God help thee, and God help me, Lucy. I cannot think that in this most mild and dulcet air the invisible agencies are plotting treasons against our loves. Oh, if ye be now nigh us, ye things I have no name for, then by a name that should be efficacious, by Christ's holy name, I warn ye back from her and me. Touch her not, ye airy devils, hence to your appointed hell. Why come ye prowling in these heavenly perlows? Cannot the chains of love omnipotent bind ye fiends? Is this Pierre? His eyes glare fearfully. Now I see layer on layer deeper in him. He turns round and menaces the air and talks to it, as if defied by the air. Woe is me that fairy love should rise this evil spell. Pierre! But now I was infinite distances from thee, O oh my Lucy, wandering baffled in the choking night. But thy voice might find me, though I had wandered to the boreal realm, Lucy. Here I sit down by thee. I catch a soothing from thee. My own, own Pierre. Pierre, into ten trillion pieces I could now be torn for thee. In my bosom would yet hide thee, and there keep thee warm, though I sat down on arctic ice-flows, frozen to a corpse, my own best blessed Pierre. 
now could I plant some poniard in me, that my silly ailings should have power to move thee thus, and pain thee thus. Forgive me, Pierre, thy changed face hath chased the other from me. The fright of thee exceeds all other frights. It does so haunt me now. Press hard my hand, look hard on me, my love, that its last trace may pass away. Now I feel almost whole again, now, tis gone. Up, my Pierre, let us up and fly these hills, whence, I fear, too wide a prospect meets us. Fly we to the plain. See thy steeds neigh for thee, they call thee. See the clouds fly down toward the plain. Lo, these hills now seem all desolate to me, and the vale all verdure. Thank thee, Pierre. See now, I quit the hills, dry-cheeked, and leave all tears behind to be sucked in by these evergreens. Meet emblems of the unchanging love. My own sadness nourishes in me. Hard fate that love's best verdure should feed so on tears. Now they rolled swiftly down the slopes, nor tempted the upper hills, but sped, sped fast for the plain. Now the cloud hath passed from Lucy's eye. No more the lurid slanting light forks upward from her lover's brow. In the plain they find peace and love and joy again. It was the merest idling wanton vapor, Lucy. An empty echo, Pierre, of a sad sound, long past. Bless thee, my Pierre. The great God wrap thee ever, Lucy. So now... We are home. Chapter 6 After seeing Lucy into her aunt's most cheerful parlour, and seating her by the honeysuckle that half clambered into the window there, and near to which was her easel for crayon sketching, upon part of whose frame Lucy had cunningly trained two slender vines, into whose earth-filled pots two of the three legs of the easel were inserted and sitting down himself by her, and by his pleasant, lightsome chat, striving to chase the last trace of sadness from her, and not till his object seemed fully gained, Pierre rose to call her good aunt to her, and so take his leave till evening, when Lucy called him back, begging him first to bring her the blue portfolio from her chamber, for she wished to kill her last lingering melancholy, if any indeed did linger now by diverting her thoughts in a little pencil sketch to scenes widely different from those of Saddle Meadows and its hills. So Pierre went upstairs, but paused on the threshold of the open door. He never had entered the chamber, but with feelings of a wonderful reverentialness. The carpet seemed as holy ground. Every chair seemed sanctified by some departed saint, there once seated long ago. Here his book of love was all a rubric, and said, Bow now, Pierre, bow. But this extreme loyalty to the piety of love, called from him by such glimpses of its most secret inner shrine, was not unrelieved betimes by such quickenings of his pulses. But in fantasy he pressed the wide beauty of the world in his embracing arms. For all the world resolved itself 
into his heart's best love for Lucy. Now, crossing the magic silence of the empty chamber, he caught the snow-white bed reflected in the toilet glass. This rooted him. For one swift instant he seemed to see in that one glance the two separate beds, the real one and the reflected one, and an unbidden, most miserable presentiment thereupon stole into him. But in one breath it came and went. So he advanced, and with a fond and gentle joyfulness his eye now fell upon the spotless bed itself, and fastened on a snow-white roll that lay beside the pillow. Now he started. Lucy seemed coming in upon him, but no, tis only the foot of one of her little slippers, just peeping into view from under the narrow nether curtains of the bed. Then again his glance fixed itself upon the slender, snow-white, ruffled roll, and he stood as one enchanted. Never precious parchment of the Greek was half so precious in his eyes. Never trembling scholar longed more to unroll the mystic vellum than Pierre longed to unroll the sacred secrets of that snow-white, ruffled thing. But his hands touched not any object in that chamber, except the one he had gone thither for. Here is the blue portfolio, Lucy. See, the key hangs to its silver lock. Were you not fearful I would open it? Twas tempting, I must confess. Open it, said Lucy. Why, yes, Pierre, yes. What secret thing keep I from thee? Read me through and through. I am entirely thine, see? And tossing open the portfolio, all manner of rosy things came floating from it, and a most delicate perfume of some invisible essence. Ah, thou holy angel, Lucy! Why, Pierre, thou art transfigured. Thou now lookest as one who... Why, Pierre, as one who had just peeped in at paradise, Lucy, and... And again wondering in thy mind, Pierre, no more, come, you must leave me now. I am quite rested again. Quick, call my aunt and leave me. Stay this evening. We are to look over the book of plates from the city. You know, be early. Go now, Pierre. Well, good-bye. Till evening, thou height of all delight. Chapter 7 As Pierre drove through the silent village, Beneath the vertical shadows of the noonday trees, the sweet chamber scene abandoned him, and the mystical face recurred to him and kept with him. At last, arrived at home, he found his mother absent. So passing straight through the wide middle hall of the mansion, he descended the piazza on the other ride, and wandered away in reveries down to the river bank. Here, one primeval pine tree had been luckily left standing by the otherwise unsparing woodman, who long ago had cleared that meadow. It was once crossing to this noble pine from a clump of hemlocks far across that river that Pierre had first noticed the significant fact that while the hemlock and the pine are trees of equal growth and stature, and are so similar in their general aspect, that people unused to woods sometimes confound them. And while both trees are proverbially trees of sadness, 
yet the dark hemlock hath no music in his thoughtful boughs, but the gentle pine-tree drops melodious mournfulness. At its half-bared roots of sadness, Pierre sat down, and marked the mighty bulk and far-out-reaching length of one particular root, which, staying down the bank, the storms and rains had years ago exposed. How wide, how strong these roots must spread! Sure, this pine-tree takes powerful hold of this fair earth. Yon bright flower hath not so deep a root. This tree hath outlived a century of that gay flower's generations, and will outlive a century of them yet to come. This is most sad. Hark, now I hear the pyramidical and numberless flame-like complainings of this olean pine. The wind breathes now upon it, the wind that is God's breath. Is he so sad? O tree, so mighty thou, so lofty, yet so mournful, that is most strange. Hark, as I look up into thy high secrecies, O tree, the face, the face peeps down on me. Art thou Pierre? Come to me, O thou mysterious girl, what an ill-matched pendant thou! So that other countenance of sweet Lucy, which also hangs, and first did hang within my heart, is grief a pendant then to pleasantness? Is grief a self-willed guest that will come in? Yet I have never known thee, grief. Thou art a legend to me. I have known some fiery broils of glorious frenzy. I have oft tasted of reverie, whence comes pensiveness, whence comes sadness, whence all delicious poetic presentiments, but thou, grief, art still a ghost story to me. I know thee not, do half disbelief in thee, not that I would be without my two little cherished fits of sadness now and then, but God keep me from thee, thou art other shape, a far profounder gloom. I shudder at thee, the face, the face, forth again from thy high secrecies. O tree, the face steals down upon me. Mysterious girl, who art thou? By what right snatchest thou thus my deepest thoughts? Take thy thin fingers from me. I am affianced, and not to thee. Leave me. What share hast thou in me? Surely thou lovest not me. That were most miserable for thee and me and Lucy. It cannot be. What? Who art thou? O oh, wretched vagueness, too familiar to me, yet inexplicable, unknown, utterly unknown. I seem to founder in this perplexity. Thou seemst to know somewhat of me I know not of myself. What is it then? If thou hast a secret in thy eyes of mournful mystery, out with it. Pierre demands it. What is that thou hast veiled in thee so imperfectly that I seem to see its motion, but not its form? It visibly rustles behind the concealing screen. Now, never into the soul of Pierre stole there before a muffledness like this. If aught really lurks in it, 
ye sovereign powers that claim all my leal worshippings, I conjure ye to lift the veil. I must see it face to face. Tread I on a mine? Warn me. Advance I on a precipice? Hold me back. But abandon me to an unknown misery that it shall suddenly seize me and possess me wholly. That ye will never do. Else Pierre's fond faith in ye, now clean, untouched, may clean depart, and give me up to be a railing atheist. Ah, now the face departs. Pray heaven it hath not only stolen back and hidden again in thy high secrecies, O tree, but tis gone, gone, entirely gone, and I thank God, and I feel joy again. Joy, which I also feel to be my right as man. Deprived of joy, I feel I should find cause for deadly feuds with things invisible. Ha! A coat of iron mail seems to grow round and husk me now. And I have heard that the bitterest winters are foretold by a thicker husk upon the Indian corn. So our old farmers say. But tis a dark similitude. Quit thy analogies, sweet in the orator's mouth, bitter in the thinker's belly. Now then, I'll up with my own joyful will, and with my joy's face scare away all phantoms. So they go. And Pierre is joy's and life again. Thou pine tree, henceforth I will resist thy too treacherous persuasiveness. Thou not so often woo me to thy airy tent, to ponder on the gloomy-rooted stakes that bind it. Hence now I go, and peace be with thee, pine. That blessed sereneness which lurks ever at the heart of sadness, mere sadness, and remains when all the rest has gone, that sweet feeling is now mine, and cheaply mine. I am not sorry I was sad, I feel so blessed now. Dearest Lucy, well, well, twill be a pretty time we'll have this evening. There's the book of Flemish prints, that first we must look over, then second in Flaxman's Homer, clear-cut outlines, yet full of unadorned barbaric nobleness, then Flaxman's Dante, Dante, knights and hell's poet he. No, we will not open Dante. He thinks now the face, the face, minds me a little of pensive sweet Francesca's face, or rather as it had been Francesca's daughter's face, wafted on the sad dark wind toward observant Virgil and the blistered Florentine. No, we will not open Flaxman's Dante. Francesca's mournful face is now ideal to me. Flaxman might evoke it wholly make it present in lines of misery, bewitching power. No, I will not open Flaxman's Dante. Damned be the hour I read in Dante, more damned than the wherein Paolo and Francesca read in Fatal Lancelot. End of Book Two, Part Two